The Parkinson Spiegel Show. I mean, you guys are the best team in Chicago. Everybody knows that. We all know that the afternoon show is not afraid of anything, really. Yeah. But Afternoons on the score. Welcome back, Parkinson Spiegel on the score. Joining us now from the NFL Network, longtime Patriots executive, also general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs, Scott Pioli, with us on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline, Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Scott, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Um, you're welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. Doing well. Doing well, thanks. So, uh, you know, the Bears kind of own the offseason. So we've pledged to the audience every day at this time between now and the draft to kind of parse it, to talk about a prospect or a mock draft or a hypothetical. You know, it's rumor season. Uh, What what would you be thinking about if you're Ryan Poles with Justin Fields, the number one pick and the most cap space of any team in the league? I would be burying myself, which I'm assuming he's doing because he's a draft guy, right? He's a personnel guy. He knows how important the draft is. Knowing where his pick is scheduled to be and the possibilities that that can come from that. So he's spending his time right now working on the draft, working with the scouts. You know, because you have December draft meetings, and then you have this time of year where you want to have some more important meetings leading up to the combine and have a lot of knowledge and information before you get to the combine because the other thing he's having to do right now is get his coaches caught up on the draft prospects and who they are and helping to get them caught up in fast time especially the head coach so this is a time where they are draft focused and again probably at some point we'll be taking calls once they have the number one pick you know do you want to move out of there do you want to stay there do you want to collect more currency is Justin Fields going to be the guy? Is he not going to be the guy? These are all the discussions that are going on right now. Oh, and by the way, you mentioned how much cap space they have. Who are our targets going to be in free agency? If you had Justin Fields going into his third year of the rookie deal, would you be tempted to draft a young quarterback to reset the rookie contract since you are so far away as a roster, or would you build around Justin? Here's the thing. I, I came from a school of thought that started with Ron Wolf. Uh, can I talk about a Green Bay GM on Chicago Station? Please don't. It's, a, it's allowed. I, I, I apologize. It's Ron, allowed. Ron said, "Take one every year. Take a quarterback every take year. One right? every year. Absolutely." And and that's a, a belief I have. Where you take him, that all depends on what your other needs are and what opportunities there. Right. Some people say draft based on need. Some people say draft based on best player available. Really, it's some combination of that. And drafting a quarterback every year can create a different kind of currency, especially if you can develop those quarterbacks. I mean, I go back to our time, you know, when I was with Parcells in um, in New York. I go back to the time at the Patriots where whether it was Matt Castle, Cliff Kingsbury, Tom Brady, you know, he, again, Brady was drafted in the sixth round. Let's be clear. We didn't think we were drafting the starter when we drafted him. And every year or close to every year, we drafted quarterbacks and they create a different kind of currency. If you can develop them, maybe you develop them for your own team. Maybe you draft a guy, you know, in a later in the later in the draft, fifth, sixth, seventh round, and you can start to develop that player. But if you don't have a spot for him, you know he's going to hit free agency. You can therefore then flip it for a higher draft pick. So there's a lot of you can create value. I mean, Ron Wolf made a living out of it, and some of the other teams around the league did. So to me, long-winded way of saying, yes, if there's an opportunity to draft a quarterback and he's a guy that you think fits your system, fits your culture, heck yeah. 
Scott Pioli from the NFL Network is our guest. What do you think Ryan Poles could get for Justin Fields if he made him available? You know, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know because you can sit here. Here's the thing about trades that, that it's so difficult, I think, sometimes for fans to understand. As a fan, you can look at a player and say, you know, we're going to get a first rounder. We're going to get a second rounder. We're going to get a first rounder and a second rounder. And it's great if you create some sort of value in your mind, but a trade takes two people. And what you believe the value is and what the other 31 people believe the value is, oh, and by the way, those other 31 teams, not all 31 of them need quarterbacks. So value begins to change. And, and as silly as it sounds, and it's cliche, but the value of a trade is in the eye of the beholder and the person that you're going to get engaged in. There, you, you can hold your breath all day long and say, well, we're going to get two ones. We're going to get this. He's still in his rookie contract. You know, it depends on how desperate the other side is. We're hoping that both the Texans and the Colts are very desperate and that ownership might get involved and push one towards the other. Do we need a number one quarterback to clearly emerge? Do we need Bryce Young or whoever it is to be the undisputed number one in order to make the Bears position the most valuable? Here's what I'll say is you know, I'm hearing the question, but I think the other thing that Ryan Bowles and and the coaching staff have to have to determine is how many players away are we? Because that number one overall pick, yeah, it could be a quarterback. Yeah, it could be Bryce Young. Maybe they're comfortable with what they have because only they know how they feel about Justin Fields. But the other thing is this. If you move back from one and it's the right draft and you can get back to number three, four, five, and or, or even later and get a bunch more picks because let's face it, I think the Bears have a roster right now where they need more than just a quarterback, right? This is a football team that has has a number of needs. So I think you have to think about what you can get with pick number one. Can you also at this, there's so many moving parts here. And then as some of those options fall, you have to make new decisions. So I, I hope I'm making some sense in that, but that number one overall pick this year to someone else might be worth a multitude of picks that you can continue to build your football team. And I'm a big believer in having as many picks as you possibly can because each one of them is currency. And I know this after having run a number of drafts, you're going to get it wrong, right? There are times you're going to get those picks wrong. So the more opportunities you have to pick, the more opportunities you have to get it right. And you're going to need a lot of it, a lot of opportunities in order to get it right. Scott Pioli from the NFL Network is our guest. I like that you said, you know, you drafted Brady, but not to be the starter was the sixth round. You just said, you know, we're, we're going to get it wrong. It's it, You guys do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of evaluation, and then it still is like a little bit better uh, odds than a hand of blackjack or, or a lottery ticket, yeah. whatever the case may be. Isn't uh, that every job, though? Isn't well, that, I mean, coaches study all week long to, to make the right call, to call the right play, to call the right defense in certain circumstances and situations. They're going to get it right. Sometimes they're going to get it wrong. I mean, you I, I shouldn't speak for you guys, but I'm betting maybe once or twice you guys got it wrong. No, no, I, that's the never thing. Never happens. It doesn't happen. Here. I covered you in Kansas City. I never had a wrong opinion. Never once. Uh, but I actually, I that actually is something that I've been thinking about a lot more recently. Um, coaches sometimes do get second or third chances, right? Like, yeah. GMs don't. Yeah. There, there, there are some examples, but it, but once you run a team. 
and it doesn't work and you all get hired to get fired, you might get a pro scouting or an assistant GM or pro personnel or whatever the case may be. But like, why do you think it is that it's so much more rare for a GM to get a second shot at running a team compared to a head coach? It's a great question because I think through through failure, which you know I was fortunate enough to be a part of success, but I've also been a part of failure, as you say, being out in Kansas City. It didn't work out for me out there because I didn't make enough of the right decisions. And I think what happens with everybody in life when you when things don't work out and you fail or you don't succeed, whatever phrase you want to use, you learn something through that, or you can learn something through that. But it's interesting. It, it's a great question because when you look at the very few general managers that have gold jackets, they've all failed spectacularly at some point in time. You know, you look at Ron Wolf. Ron Wolf's been was fired. You know, Ron Wolf was at, the, at those at the Jets when the, the Jets weren't so good. And you look at Bobby Beathard. Bobby Beathard had been fired. And Bill Polin was fired multiple times. You know, he was fired from, you know, he went to four Super Bowls, but then he was fired by the Bills. And he was fired in Carolina. And um, so when you look at, you know, I'm not sure what the reason is. That's a, that's a an answer I think owners can give. But again, through failure, we all learn stuff. And whether or not people want to take it, take a chance on that or give someone another opportunity is up to them. Hey, Scott, um, what Tom Brady did in Tampa Bay to assimilate himself and make it work, we know it's a testament to his work ethic and the way he goes about his business. When Aaron Rodgers emerges from the darkness, if he were to go to a new team, do you have faith in him doing the work he needs to do to assimilate to that new team? It depends on who the head coach is. It depends on what the locker room's like. I, I think every circumstance will be different. I think he has an opportunity to, because here's the other thing is, I think if, if Aaron's going to play another year or years, plural, and it's going to be somewhere else, I don't think that his personality is going to allow him to set himself up for failure. And he's going to do some things differently and maybe change would be good for him. Um, to approach things new and fresh and differently. Um, and, and again, I, I want to be careful not to speak for him because, you know, he's certainly a guy that, that none of us knows what he's going to do. But I, I would imagine that he would understand in going to a new situation in a circumstance, he's a really, really smart guy, that he would have to go there with a plan. He wouldn't just say, oh, okay, let's go. I'm going to go to the Raiders and just show up. He's going to have a plan. He is a thinker. He's a thoughtful person. So he, he would definitely have to do things differently than what they've been. The, something similarly, something's differently, if that makes sense. Scott, good to talk to you. It's been a while, and uh, it's fun seeing you on the NFL Network. Do you ever think you'd do the media thing? I didn't. I didn't. Did you ever think I would? No. <laughs> That's why I asked. That's why I asked. No, I, but I'll tell you, and the, and the truth is this. One of the reasons that I that – I, it's crazy to – uh, this is what I got my undergraduate and master's degree in. But, you know, part of what I did poorly in my time at Kansas City was work with the media, right, and be involved in the media. Part of it was because I came from an organization where we just didn't get exposure to the media. So, therefore, when I had my first opportunity, I didn't do a very good job. And I really felt strongly that when after after I was fired in Kansas City – that if I really wanted to get better at some of the things I wasn't doing well, well, you need to go face them. So I, I took this on as a as a bit of a personal challenge for to to be better and to grow a little bit. 
That's actually really awesome to hear, and it's been cool to see uh, where the career's gone since, and we really appreciate you making time for the show, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care of my boy, Poles, will you? Yeah, hey, absolutely. We'll love to talk to you again about him. Absolutely. We'll do it. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. We know he had to run. We talked to that guy for 20 more minutes. Yeah. But, uh, take care of my boy, Poles. It sounded like he kind of wanted to, um, actually. But we, we know that he did have to run, and he was on a on a time limit. Take care of my boy, Poles. So he's, he's got, obviously, the history with Ryan. Woo, I love the self-awareness because he was not uh, good with the media in Kansas City. I, that's funny. That's, that's it's funny what, that he I, can I, talk about it I, and I, laugh about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like th- that's not as interesting to the audience necessarily as that is to me just from, from being there. But you know what? The audience is familiar with so many people who've been bad with the media and then transitioned in. And the Patriot way. Yes. Right? That, there was a book written about it that was called that. Bel- Bill Belichick famously uh, you know, guarded with the media. We talk about NFL coaches and executives treating the stuff like state secrets. Ryan Pace would never speak uh, except to the pregame interview on BBM. And then when polls spoke, we were like, oh, my God. He's just l- talking to us. L- l- this is amazing. Yep. Uh, that guy, Scott Pioli, had a cover story written on the, in the Kansas City Star about his tenure there with the headline, Arrowhead Anxiety. And Todd Haley, the coach, uh, believed that his office was bugged because of the secrecy, and he was so paranoid about people being mm. sources to the media and and selling state secrets. And get that him back on, Shane. Get him back on. Well, no, I mean, again, you, you, you got that, bugs. You got bugs at NFL Network Studios, or what? Yeah, no. Again, like I mean, he's the guy got fired. You know what I mean? Like that. That that that's old history. But it, I remember using him as an example because the first gig he got. It was with it was I think it was with Sirius NFL actually like to be a postseason analyst right after he got fired and I remember all of us who were covering those Chiefs teams were like wait what <laughs> you couldn't get that guy to I mean the beat writer for the Kansas City Star couldn't get the guy's cell number you know mm-hmm. what I mean like it was it was locked down but he came from New England where you were yeah. kind of advised to treat them as opposition yeah and he did and it was part of why things didn't work out so here he is uh taking on the challenge he, um he, the thing that he, he wouldn't really commit on the Bears stuff I know I was it was a little a little frustrating yeah um but I, I it, but but that's you know he doesn't know the exact situation but if it's his boy polls maybe he does know some things and he doesn't want to tip a hand i mean that's also possible out there yeah i think so i'm thinking about like what he was saying about trades he's like what fans he said what fans don't understand about trades is that you might think it should be worth x because of like precedent of trading there yeah but if someone else falls in love and gets desperate they trade more or if there isn't someone valued there, then the trade that was there previously isn't available. I think mm-hmm. that's instructive, right? Because so we don't know the answer to that yet. But so just as I work through this, in two thousand and thirteen, the Chiefs had the number one pick, and it was the Eric Fisher draft. There was no quarterback. Now Lane, there were three tackles that people were talking Lane about. Lane Johnson that year. Lane Johnson went four and ended up being the best choice. Fisher was a good, solid player, but Lane Johnson ends up being you know best right tackle in football, uh, and, and and a Pro Bowl and an All Pro caliber player. But the the top of the 2013 draft is just littered with bad. The top 15, 16 picks. You can go back and look at it. It's terrible. Um, so there was De- I, Deion Jordan 
the guy in Miami. And then there's I forget who the fourth pick. The, there were there were four dudes up there. Mm-hmm. There were three tackles and Deion Jordan. And I forget who the the third tackle was. But the point is, is that like the number one pick in that year, you couldn't trade it. It was impossible to trade because nobody had a grade on a player in that draft. Luke Jokel. Luke Jokel. Thank you. No one had a grade on a player, like a top 10 grade, but you had top 10 picks. So there were no trades in the top five of that draft because like it was like, why would I trade up to take a guy who I've got like a grade on who should be the 23rd pick in a normal draft? It was just mm-hmm. a historically crappy draft. So nobody could trade up in that spot. This year, we're hoping that Will Anderson, Jalen Carter, Bryce Young, Will Levis, we're hoping that there's a bunch of guys that have legitimate 1-1, 1-2, 1-3 type of draft grades. Mm-hmm. Next year, we know that Caleb Williams does. He might be like a super number one pick. I think overall, though, as we've looked at these mocks that have come out and have the quarterback conversation is continuing to evolve, and we've got a long way to go here Yeah, combine and pro days. Just about every mock has four quarterbacks in the top 10. That is inherently good. That it is inherently good. And CJ Stroud, I just saw the other day, has been either at seven or at two. Like there's volatility. Teams always fall in love with quarterbacks. Yes. And, that, and that 2013 draft was like a worst case scenario. Right. That was like an Andrew Bogut at one scenario so if you've in the got, NBA. Right. So if you've got four in the top 10 and you've got the notorious volatility and the notorious hunger, I'm back to where I began, which is that somebody is going to be Ryan Pace. In this draft, some GM is going to fall in love and become irrational to the benefit of the Bears. That I I think you're right. I think it's trending that way. And again, Pro Days and Combine will get a ton more information about this. Um, but there are still those drafts. The, the 2017 draft's a great example of it. There were quarterbacks mocked in the top five. Mitch Trubisky. Everyone said Miles Garrett was one, mm-hmm. and so you because it was, it was like oh well the the defense so like you what you don't want is Will Anderson to come out and everyone's like oh my god this guy's Miles Garrett and Von Miller if they just if they cloned you know and just merged together mm-hmm. and created a pass rusher you want someone to trade up for them you want a quarterback to have a true one one grade there so that that pick has the most value to be traded. 10 second interruption real quick just to get it out there. Io DeSumo named to the Rising Stars game. Oh, that's nice. NBA All-Star Weekend. Good for Io. It was a little weird that he had to be a... A reserve? Like a replacement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After how much hype he got last year was seen as a lock uh, was a part of the game. He was a part of the game last year. Last year on on the rookie team and it's a deep roster. So for him to not be among the second year players was... uh, was a bit of a bummer because yeah he so he replaced uh, a dude with injury right so yeah he he was a, he was an injury replacement on, Man, the, on the team um, All Star Saturday night is um, is not star studded at some of the other spots the dunk competition does not have a lot of uh, names that are exciting to people that's that's sometimes the case though that is sometimes the case they got they got some big jumpers I'm bummed my guy Shaden Sharp is is it in it I. Remember me make, telling you about him yeah. before before the draft? I was like, I want the Bulls to draft upside for uh-huh. stardom. I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I just you saw the highlights, uh-huh. you saw the youth, you saw the athleticism. I was like, can you go get that guy, please? Let me ask you: um, of the top 19 shooters 
by three-point percentage in the NBA. How Top 19. 19. Okay. How many of them are competing in the NBA's three-point contest? Take a, take a guess. It's, of, it's of the top nineteen. I don't know. Three. One. Buddy Heald. That's it. El Buddy Heald. Uh, it's good timing for Buddy Heald. What do you have? Twenty-seven last night against the Bulls in the second half. Didn't he play with Air Bud in the third movie? <laughs> I I do not believe so. Okay. But and Buddy. Because Steph, Steph said no, right? Steph said no. Yeah, well, Steph's well. hurt. She got to watch Eli and Owen. She can't just <laughs> jacking up threes. Yeah, <laughs> she can't just fly to Utah. Yeah, come on, dude. She's I, Jul- Julius Randle's in the three-point contest. He's shooting 33%. Yeah, Julius that's weird. That's I, I mean, Dame Lillard's in there, and I bet he's going to win it. And that and that'll be fun, uh, but he's just shooting so much volume that he's not in the in the top nineteen. But you have hmm. one guy in the top nineteen in the three point shooting contest. Well, but this is this will when it'll sneak up on you. It's in Utah. There's not a lot of ton of big names in it. it this this is when it'll sneak up on you. And Carl be good. Malone will be there. You, you know you know who is in for the, him. You know who's in the three point contest as well as the All Star game out of Utah. It's Lowry, Lowry Markinen. Lowry Markinen. I, I just pulled it up. Yeah, that's creative statisticing by you because he's he's number twenty. Who's that? Lowry. Lowry. Twentieth okay. in three point field goal percentage. Well, I'd like to thank um, Steph No, uh, Steph No for oh, for doing oh, okay. that. It wasn't your stat. Okay. Oh yeah, no, I was not the guy hanging around <laughs> cross checking the top nineteen. Oh, you were doing NBA. I mean, I've done that before. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I've done that before, but I didn't do it now. Dave wants that joins us at four o'clock. Speaks is thirtieth uh, favorite baseball player of the last thirty years. We're going to do it for our thirty shows. By the way, are you committing to working the next thirty shows? <laughs> I saw that that fairly obvious question. And did you count President's Day That's a good question. as an off Shane, for us? Did oh, you count I pres- didn't count President's Day. <laughs> it's all right, it's we just, knew so we'll just do one on opening day then because we record that little segment, remember, before for, for opening day usually, don't we? Didn't we do that last Sometimes. year? Sometimes. Before first pitch. Sometimes. Sometimes. But and Speaks is going to take, take a show or two off. He's going to have to double dip. I could double dip on it every once in a while. It, just, it feels like it's going against the principle of the idea. But I, just know we tried to get 30 players yeah. for 30 shows, yeah, 30 brought, days from opening day, and I, we already have messed it up, and we haven't even done the first. I know, but I brought it up in time to possibly execute that, and I'm, uh, I'm proud of that. A little backpack. <laughs> and we're if you don't up. come through, we're going to pick one for you if you're not here. <laughs> I you're like not going to like it. <laughs> This, yeah, this is like your promise of a parody song every week. How did Mike Caruso get on this list? <laughs> what the song? hell, man? Well, and this guy loved Royce Clayton. Got it. Got to show up to work. Big fan. Got to show up to work. Why is Mike Clevenger on this list? Oh, uh, way to bring the room down. Too soon. Too soon. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk to Dave Wants that at four o'clock. Speaking of the White Sox, uh-huh. Rick Hahn talked about baseball and some of it. Kind of mattered that wasn't about Mike Clevenger. You'll hear it next on the score. What kind of conversation did you have with fans? You mentioned fans. I mean, what do you mean? Like, I mean, I've, I've talked to people. Call people, people have called. People stop me in public. People stop the TSA guy. Like to talk a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I'm out and about. People, people talk. Yeah, people Rick, talk. Uh, For the most part, I will say, you know, look, it, it's uh, putting aside anything related to Mike, a lot of what I've heard from fans has been pretty positive uh, in terms of their excitement for Pedro. Uh, I mean, I, most every other conversation mentions health in some level of uh, for, uh, some capacity, which I get. But for the most part, uh, I, I'm hearing from a lot of people who are excited about the prospect that is for the future that this club holds. Mm.
Inspiring stuff from Rakan yesterday. So, Tanny, with Al Michaels speaking for him, saying, hmm, is, I think, doubting that Rakan has gotten positive feedback from White Sox fans he's interacted with. So, I don't doubt that at all. I think that selective polling, right? Or uh, uh, feedback in person. Nobody's going to come up to his face and start talking crap. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, 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 that is not a representative sample size. Or no. the day of the Pedro Grafol opening press conference, like that in a vacuum itself. Like, yeah, we're all great day. I was out and about after that. It was great. It Everyone sure was. was complimented. Yeah. I was among them right there that day. Absolutely. But I mean, The Athletic did a survey of 2,000 White Sox fans, and it was F. Fairly negative, mm-hmm. you know? So. Yeah, it's, F is fairly negative. Yeah, well, that was the grade from Fegan for the offseason. I'm talking about the survey. Oh, yeah, for sure. The, the, of the 2,000 fans that were polled, uh, they did a survey of 2,000 fans. No, and, and it was it, the, the, result, the results were terrible. But I, listen, I don't think that fans quit on teams. I think they get angry and we bitch and we moan and we complain. And then, by and large, we go back out there. Mm-hmm. And that's generally, or it's generally speaking, how this whole thing works. We're addicted to this stuff. That's why we're sports fans. But. Uh, they're certainly testing it. They're certainly testing it. Because there was Andrew Benintendi, which was a really good move, and then there just wasn't a lot of other stuff. Right. So Rick Hahn kind of addressed all of that, uh, beginning with uh, the perceived lack of offseason moves. I don't think any club's going to sit here today and say they have enough. There's going to be guys who step forward and are the Davis Martins of 2023, just like Davis sort of grabbed the opportunity last year and developed. Uh, We'll still look to add, but there's uh, there's some young talent in there that I look forward to seeing how they progress this year. How do you, do you feel like the, you uh, did what you needed to do this offseason to improve this team? I don't think I've ever felt that way in an offseason, that we've done everything we've wanted to, to do. Uh, I know we've had offseasons where we've received accolades and awards and, and good grades, uh, and we've had others where people have disagreed with what we've done. Uh, ultimately, uh, the one nice thing about this sport is the actual report card, or any pro sport, is the actual report card comes on the field, not in the offseason. Um, we have a team that's got a ton of talent and an opportunity in front of us to uh, prove that we were the team that we looked like we were going to be in 2019, 2021, and heading into 22 and to get this thing back on track fairly quickly based on the talent and the commitment of those in the players' side of the locker room and the coaches' side. So we look forward to proving we're better than perhaps some people think at this time. Well, um, they are counting on the people that are here to be coached up and to get better than what they were. They are more talented than their projections suggest they are. This I is agree a, with that. Th- right? This is a team that... This is the bones of a team that had back-to-back 90-win seasons two and three years ago. I'm a big Lance Lynn fan. I think he works on his game and improves. Dylan Cease was a breakout superstar. Michael Kopech is healthy. What Lucas Giolito am I getting? I think the starting rotation should be pretty good. I'm getting skinny boy Lucas. Right, he's back to lanky Lucas. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what's 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 the four seam fastball like? 110 miles an hour. I heard <laughs> that sounds good. That would be good. Enough. That, yeah, bo- into that, it. that bodes well. Yep. If you're a fastball fan, obviously Liam Hendricks is a big loss, and they've got other guys. Bullpen volatility is an issue, but also like they're not deep. 
for how much money they're spending on their payroll relative to their own history yeah. and a top 10 payroll in baseball, they're not very deep. You know, what he mentioned that somebody has to be the Davis Martin. That's uh yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to find one. Uh-huh. We're going to find a Davis great. Martin, guys. It's going to well, be great. We're going to find one. They got a lot of big money guys in that bullpen. Well, Jake Speaks, doesn't he just mean they need a pitcher to be someone above average when a replacement is needed? Uh, yeah, because in that bullpen, you got a lot of questions. Joe Kelly, Jake Diekman, Aaron Bummer, Kendall Graveman, all making a lot of money, and Liam Hendricks all making a lot of money for bullpen guys, all have to show up and be really, really good. Because behind them, you don't know when Garrett Crochet is coming back. You're, what are you going to count on Tanner Banks? What about Banks? I mean, you got you got a lot of questions back there. So we need somebody to step up in that bullpen if the big money guys are not good or not healthy. He addressed the obvious place where an addition seemed to make sense to a lot of the observers of the team second base there's been nothing but raves about Romy Gonzalez this offseason from those coaches that have worked for him they even had a player who went down and worked with him and came back and came into my office in the offseason and said don't you dare trade that guy uh, but there's a there's a lot of enthusiasm about Romy and his and his future uh Lennon Sosa got a little taste last year. He obviously moved quickly. Want to see how he shows up and how he acclimates himself to sort of his first real big league opportunity and if he rises that occasion or if it becomes more of a challenge. Uh, Those are two of the most interesting guys in that mix. Obviously, Lurie's around. Guys like Zach Remillard, you know, have been sort of forcing the issue for a few years. Let's see what he has. And uh, as I said, there's still, you know, conversations ongoing elsewhere as well. Did he say Leary's around? Obviously he is. You want to tell me that giving Leary $17.5 million was Rick's decision and that's the way he's talking about him? Oh, my God. Oh, That's a Kenny thing. Obviously, Leary's around. It's a Kenny thing. Well, maybe. It certainly was a Tony thing. It sure as hell was a Tony thing. Leary's around. Obviously, Leary's around is phenomenal. Hanser Alberto, also around. <laughs> what do you think that means? Like, like, he's around? Yeah, he's like shagging grounders, or he's just pouring coffee, I think, I or think he's, he's playing golf. I think he's got a lock on the 26th man spot. He's, he's got a he, lock on it. He's around. He's getting paid. He's around. Do you hear the omission there? Somebody we've been uh, wanting to play second base? Jake Berger. Jake Berger and omission. I don't think they defensively believe that Jake Berger can man that spot. Nice and, of them to start prioritizing defense. Either that, or they just like Roman Gonzalez that much. Well, that's what good organizations do. Like, if you if you have a void somewhere, ideally someone comes up from the minor leagues yeah. or Rule 5 or whatever, and they come up and they can give you adequate <laughs> production at a position like second base. That's what good organizations do. So Houston did when Carlos Correa left. Yep. They were able to plug shortstop in. Which Jeremy is Pena, yeah, there you exactly. go. And look at him. Um, and, and you know what? Those guys matter to a team chemistry, to a team vibe. If you are what is now somehow – a grizzled veteran of Yohan Moncada, you know, and you're looking around, you want that young, hungry spark plug who's busting their ass to be better every day. You need those guys. Well, and if, I'm okay with that at second base. I'm going to have an open mind about Romy Gonzalez, actually. I'm going to have an open mind. I like the tools. I like the tools as well. Yeah. I like the tools, and I like uh, everything we've heard about the character and, and, and the vibe. Well, they're going to need someone to fill the void, right? Left by uh, Jose Abreu, who's the model of consistency. Oh. So here's Rick Hahn on what opportunities that provides. Jose, look, you're, uh, for nine years, he was exemplary in terms of what we'd want in a White Sox player, in terms of his performance, his commitment, 
uh, his work uh, with his teammates and, and in the White Sox community at large. Uh, and he'll be missed. It's weird looking in the clubhouse and not seeing him. Uh, that said, uh, I feel like this team heading into this year, we're going to be a, a little stronger defensively based on how guys are going to line up. I think that uh, we're going to have a balanced lineup, which we've met, that Andrew helps bring. And if Colas lines up in right field, will help complement as well. Uh, I think we're going to be a little different from what you saw last season in terms of uh, energy level and preparation and focus and the talent still remains in that room that again a year ago had everyone extremely optimistic about this group so uh, never gonna you're never gonna hear from anyone with the White Sox that uh, anything other than Jose is missed but that doesn't mean that we can't still have a damn good team even if he's not here what you're going to see is different in terms of energy level, preparation, and focus. Mr. Grafal, come on down. We've got a theme, and it doesn't end there with Pedro. There's more to come on that. How much do you think they are relying on, you say, coaching him up? And, and, and what he just said, and I say coaching him up, and it is, it is diminutive when I'm saying it with a little, but energy level, preparation, and focus – Hell, man, that stuff matters a yeah, ton. Absolutely. And it was trash last year. Absolute trash. They got complacent. They, they're saying the right things, the players are, when we talk to them, right, about we're pissed, it was embarrassing, we underperformed, we've been working harder. I mean, they put out a whole hype video about how much they underperformed, basically. Like, the Bears put out a hype video about how they're going to own the offseason, and White, the White Sox put up a video yeah. of – we're we're angry and we're going to do better. We're sorry. Hey, man, I, I, I deeply hope that Pedro Grafal has a tremendously positive effect on those things, and I think it is entirely possible that, that he will. They need it desperately. So speaking of uh, replacing his power and messaging, here's the last thing from Rick Hahn on the baseball. Rick, I think you talked uh, at the end of last year about the importance of, of improving the power numbers uh, offensively. Uh, I guess, first of all, what have you seen from Pedro and the staff that, that gives you confidence that the guys that are here are going to be able to do that? And I guess, and secondly, do, do you think that you infused enough power into this roster with, with some of the uh, other players, the newer faces that are coming? Uh, a lot of it's going to have to come from the internal improvement and a return to the career norms for guys uh, in terms of the power production. Uh, we're not looking for Benintendi to necessarily you know, hit 15 to 20. He can had the same season he had last year, and that'd be extremely valuable from an offensive standpoint, even without that kind of power. Uh, but I'd say the Pedro, the hitting coaches, uh, are implementing a program that's going to have us uh, in, a, in a very good position for guys to unlock and fulfill their potential, to understand their swings, understand what they're trying to do on certain pitches, understand how they're being pitched to, prepared for... Uh, put in a position to do some damage so I I'm, I'm feel health permitting knock on wood I feel high level of confidence that offense is going to be much closer to what it was supposed to be than what we saw last year was that I mean obviously there was so much going in going on last year but was, was part of that messaging was there was there messaging that was preventing some power and I mean look there will be made, different messaging that will fix there's certainly going to be different mes messaging and different game prep and obviously we made the very significant changes to our coaching staff. So I think that answers, you know, one of the elements that we thought we could get better in. Wow. 
significant changes to our coaching staff. That's not just Tony. That's Frank Manichino. That's the overall approach. And that is uh, a GM desperate to see his team get back to hitting the long ball. 22nd in MLB last year in home runs. Uh, 19th the year before. And uh, in 2021. And in 2020, uh, they were much higher. They were third in all of baseball in the shortened 2020 season in home runs. He really dislikes Tony La Russa. He really did. <laughs> he really disliked the last couple of years, almost as much as everybody else. <laughs> if only there was some way to have seen that coming. Maybe it was the the hostage look on his face when Tony was hired. Yeah, maybe that. Was, it that could have been, been that. It. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Subtweeting his, his last two years all throughout that thing. Yeah, really. He really, he really did. Uh so we, uh, Tanny's open today. It was us fumbling the Raquel Welch eulogy. We'll see if we could do better coming up before Dave Wanstead at 4 o'clock on the score. Now Blum, the former Astro, takes a ball in the dirt. In the time that it's taken to play this game, you could fly from Baltimore to Iceland <laughs> or watch the longest game in World Series history. Blum hits it into right down the line. It is gone. Jeff Blum, the former Astro, goes deep. And here in the 14th inning, the White Sox take a 6-5 lead. Down and in. The former Astro traded to Tampa Bay for tomorrow night's starter by Houston, Brandon Backey. R.I.P. to Tim McCarver. Played across four decades in Major League Baseball. 24 World Series, a Ford C. Frick Award winner. Broadcast 24 World Series. Broadcast 24 World Series. Did I say play? No. but I don't think so. Yeah, 24 World Series uh, as, a, as an analyst, 29 uh, overall in the booth. Can I go back to him as a player like you're talking yeah. about? He caught Bob Gibson more than anybody. Yep. He also caught Steve, Steve Carlton, Carlton more than anybody. Yeah. Unbelievable career uh, dedicated to baseball, 81 years old. Um, read today in Kenny Rosenthal's obit that last night his teammate Jim Cott uh, was with him as he passed and was whispering to him, all right, one is a fastball, two is a curve, which is kind of beautiful and sad and heavy. And funny. And funny. You know, right? right? Like As you're supposed to try to be in these circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's uh, a good, a good that's, friend. That's well done. Do you think Mrs. McCarver finds it very funny? I don't know. I'm unaware of. I I, I don't know. But I, 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 Book Mrs. McCarver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's ask her. Yeah. Uh, no, I think at that moment that yeah, you wanna you wanna cut the tension a little bit. Yeah. and you know he's still in there. You wanna give him a little laugh, and a little so, smile. So McCarver was a laughing stock for a large portion of the end of his career. Like your cognizance of him and Joe Buck as a team, who did 18 World Series together, was McCarver a laughing stock by the by the time you were. Conscious of him as a broadcasting icon. I mean, he did the. I mean, how long of it? I mean, I remember a lot of it, right? He did six years with the Cardinals after he was done at Fox, for sure. And so, I mean, it's not it's not that long ago. No, it's true. Like, I mean, I, I'm 36. I was. I mean, he did the White Sox World Series. I remember that. So I didn't look at him as the joke that everybody made him out to be on the internet. I always think that that stuff's way overstated. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's way overstated by people in our line of work who create straw man arguments and fall in love with the internet. I apologize that I was making you John Q. Straw Man. No, uh, no, it's right okay. Like, I mean, because he, it existed out there. and, and It's a five-letter word. S-T-R-I-K. 
Amazing. Is, that is six letters. It is six letters. Yeah. Yeah. There's also there's the famous moment where um, that Cub fans love when McCarver post Fox career was calling uh, a, a moment where John Lester, Lester was on the mound. Yeah. He's almost a third of the way to second base. <laughs> I think every guy should do this. There's no question about it. Whether I you agree. have speed or not. Absolutely. That's an unbelievable lead that he has. See, and if he throws over where Tommy Pham is, he just takes off to second base. He could. That's a trick that step off and hold the ball. He's not going to throw to first base. Oh man, it's all right. It's worth it to be out on the bases, Tim. It's not. It's not worth it. I mean, the guy had great moments. Oh, he did. He, he, tons of great moments. Like I, I always think of that stuff. It's like we have fun with it on sports radio. Mm-hmm. But if you do network television for nearly 30 years and 24 World Series, yeah. you're also going to have a ton of great moments, which he did and which we have. Yeah, no, I, like, I remember the, the 01 World Series, man. That was incredible. Council was in that. I remember watching it with Brad. Yeah. Th- it was th- amazing. This, this, this moment from the 01 World Series is one of the finest moments that you will ever hear a color analyst have as Luis Gonzalez is at the plate, Mariano Rivera on the mound, the World Series in the balance. And here's McCarver. The chance of a lifetime for Luis Gonzalez. 2-2, bottom of the ninth, game seven of the World Series. Bases loaded, infield in, one out. Strike one. The one problem is Rivera throws inside the left-handers. And left-handers get a lot of broken bat hits in the shallow outfield. The shallow part of the outfield. That's the danger in bringing the infield in with a guy like Rivera on the mound. Floater, center field. The Diamondbacks are world champions. That's him predicting a World Series game winner against the greatest relief pitcher in the history of the game. Exactly as it happened. Incredible. Um, With how many national games he called, I always thought he did such a good job of dumbing the game down for fans that might not be watching their the teams every day on a regional level. Mm-hmm. He made it very understandable. I think I think that's true. Um, you know, I grew up with him and Ralph Kiner as the team for the Mets, and I heard a lot of those games on WOR Channel Nine. And McCarver was great, like truly great, and one of the first. Times you're like, man, this guy's really thinking it through like a catcher. And and I used to push very hard against those straw men because I remembered that part of his uh, of his career. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like like I said, I think so much of this is very – I think it's happening right now with Al Michaels. I think it happens with Tony Romo. And it doesn't mean I don't have criticisms of, of these guys, but I, I think it always gets overstated. These jobs are hard. They, they are really hard to do. That moment there in the 01 World Series, you can't be bad at your job and do that. Yeah, it's outrageous. You, uh, in the Associated Press obit, um, Keith Olbermann told the New York Times in 2002, when you consider the pressure of the moment, the time he had to say it, and the accuracy, his call was the sports announcing equivalent of Bill Mazeroski's home run in the seventh inning to defeat <laughs> the Yankees in 1960. Uh, that's awesome. I mean, that is, that is an all-time broadcaster moment for it, McCarver right it, there. It absolutely is. Um, and uh, I, I, I texted our, our friend of the show, Joe Buck, who said that he was a beautiful guy, treated him incredibly well. He absolutely loved Tim. 
And I, I shared that thing about Jim Cott, the, the Jim Cott saying it's one, it's two, and he says that McCarver probably said shut up and wanted to take a trip to the mound to change the sign. <laughs> That's awesome. That's all. Rosenthal's piece was great too about working with him for all those years on Fox. People should uh, should check that. out. I think out. we did better than Raquel Welch. What do you guys think? I don't think this is the open tomorrow. Well, she didn't have a chance to eulogize him. She died the day before. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you want to hear us mess up a eulogy, check out Tandy's open today at five o'clock. We never mess it up when we drink bourbon with Dave Wanstead. It's next on the score.